Thank you, Jen. It is a privilege to be worshiping with you today. And Melissa, that was a beautiful song, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I've had the uh, opportunity and the privilege of working with Pastor Kent at Camping Academy. I was the uh, uh, youth pastor there, and Kent taught Bible, and my wife actually worked with Anna as a school teacher. But I have to make a confession before we begin. I don't have any Greek or Hebrew words today. So I humbly apologize in advance for that, and some of you may miss it very much. However, I would like to talk to you a little bit about flags. How many of you have been Pathfinders? Then you grew up, grew up or are still appreciating the, the power of the flag and the, the Christian flag and our American flag and the, the banners and everything associated with the flag. And, and if you've ever been a part of the military, the reality is you have an even greater respect for the flag because of those who have served and protected the freedom of our country. And I cannot go to a, to a military service and keep my composure. It's a powerful reality when you go and, and the flag is handed to the loved one remaining. The flag back in Civil War days was even more significant. When I was uh, living in Maryland, we lived right next to the Antietam battlefield, and right there I would say there were hundreds of flags from all over different states that, that highlighted a regiment. But if you were chosen to be a color bearer, it was both a high honor, but very oftentimes a curse. But you were chosen because of your brevity and your courage and your faithfulness as a soldier. But oftentimes, as the color bearer, you would stand in the place where you're the most visible for your regiment to see. Because it was important that that flag is raised high so your soldiers who are trained to follow you actually be able to visualize as far as possible where you are because if that flag is still raised high and you can still see it, you know that everything is still going okay. But as the color bearer, you became the target. You were the one shot at because if, if you were taken out, then that could mean a couple of things, but usually negatively, that could have meant that you were losing the battle, and the discouragement could have set in if, if you did not see that flag raised high. It became the true compass, or the true north of your regiment, and it became your hope moving forward in battle. Exodus chapter 17 has a a fascinating story that many of you are familiar with, but it's uh, once again, surprisingly, Israel is murmuring out in the desert. They come to a place where there's no water, and Moses was fearful of his life because the Israelites were just starting to pick up the stones. It was a conspiracy theory. They felt like, well, Moses just brought us out here in the wilderness just to let us die. That was the plan all along. And as we know, Moses spoke to the Lord, and the Lord provided all the water that they needed in the desert. And of course, everything was okay and back to normal at that time, right? Everything just kind of fell into place, and the Israelites were, were totally obedient from that point forward, right? The murmuring continued. To set the backdrop for Exodus chapter 17, there was a story that was also in Deuteronomy 25, Verse 17 and 18, it says this. 
Remember what Amalek did to you. He met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, the weakest among you. Amalek was Esau's grandson, and they attacked from the rear, which in battle was the very lowest form of battle because you're attacking the more defenseless, maybe those that were weaker or or a little older that couldn't be in the front line of the battle. So they attacked them, and and God and the Israelites remember that. So now we have the stage set for a battle that's taking place in Exodus chapter 17. Turn there with me. To verse 9, chapter 17, verse 9 of Exodus. Seventeen verse 9, it says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of, my, of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up top the mountain, top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. And so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. We have the first entrance of Joshua into the story of the Bible. Joshua's name represents Jehovah is salvation. So just his very name was very symbolic here. But we have Moses and Aaron and Hur going up to a place that's very visible, much like the the color guard for all to see. But notice what Moses is not doing. He is not the commander. He's not up there issuing orders. But when you raise your hand in Bible times in that era, it was also a posture of prayer. So I think there's a lesson right there for us as a church of how we face struggles and battles. We face it through the power of prayer. But more than that, his rod became a banner of hope. That when his hand was raised through the support of each other or the two men, victory was accomplished. And when his hand fell in fatigue and weakness, The army prevailed, and then there was a different strategy. We're going to find a rock, a foundation, if you will, to be the anchor of the victory. And we all know what the rock represents in Scripture, amen? And we know the end of the story, that the Amalekites were defeated that day. But I look at our lives, and if we're real about our lives, we all face a series of victories and defeats along the way. And I look at that reality and what the rod represents. It represents the cross of Jesus Christ raised high. And when our, when our lives, and when we raise up Jesus Christ in our lives, that is our security for victory. Is that good news today? It's no different today. So our challenge today, church family, is to keep lifting up Jesus Christ on the cross as our rock and as our help and as our commander. We go to another story in Numbers chapter 21. It's, a, it's another troubling story 
where Israel is denied a passage to the country of Eden. And because they're denied, they're discouraged because now instead of facing the promised land, they have their backs to the promised land, and there's a long distance around to get there. Needless to say, a very discouraging situation, but the murmuring continued. So we see in Numbers 21, verse 5, it says this, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water. little truth check here. This is like fake news. Were they fed food? Did they have water? Yeah, they had manna. Manna was always available to them, and they claimed they had nothing. They just wanted their own bread and their own food that they got accustomed to. But here's another question. Were they in perfect health? As long as they received what God provided for them, the best of everything, they were in perfect health out in the wilderness But the Israelites became unappreciative of the provisions that God had given them. And there were a number of other things that God provided every day. There was a cloud that protected them in the intense heat of the the desert. There was also the the fire by night. And and if you've ever been out in the wilderness, there's a couple of reasons why it's nice to have some light at nighttime. One is you can see. And second thing is you can see some things that you don't want to be near. Interesting little creatures that are kind of crawly. So God provided everything they needed to be safe in the wilderness, but at times in our life, God has to say, okay, if that's what you choose, if that's the way you want it, he allows us to follow our choices. So unfortunately, their choice was to reject God in this situation And God allowed them to experience life in the desert unprotected. And we know that those creatures came out in force, those scorpions and snakes, the Bible says. But they they forgot to realize that God provided every day for their needs and their safety and their survival. They failed to remember that. And it's just shocking that in this crisis, who did they turn back to? Turn back to Moses and, in a roundabout way, God, do something, Moses. Protect us. We're in another crisis. God does two things in a crisis in our life when we face these, and he did that for the Israelites. That there was a, an instruction that God gave to Moses to lift up what? To lift up another rod of a brazen serpent. And that brazen serpent, we know again, represents Jesus' death on the cross because Jesus, as the serpent, literally became sin and the death on that cross, which was representative of Satan and the serpent. God does two things when we face crisis. One is, he either removes it, secondly, or he helps us endure it. That's exactly what happened with the Israelites in this experience. But here's the, here's the point. What was the only way of salvation? Was it reciting some Bible commandment as important, as critical as they are? Was it a sacrifice of some kind 
that was done there, an altar created? No. There was only one means of survival through that situation. And that's to look and to see the cross through the serpent. There was no plan B. There was one plan and one plan only. It was University of Cincinnati in 1967. Two men met in a photography class, one whose name was Bill and the other's name was Charles Murray. Charles Murray was um, training for the Olympics to be a high diver. I don't know if any of you have had any kind of high diving experience before, but I had one encounter in my life and I will never, ever do it again. I had no training whatsoever, and um, this was back when I was uh, working at a summer camp in Maine, and my, my guys' counselors challenged me, encouraged me to go to the quarry and jump off. What they didn't do is give me any, in, any details or any planning or any instruction. They just said, we're going to go up there and jump off. So I walked methodically to the destination, and I looked up when they said, this is it, this is the quarry, and I noticed the, the height of the quarry. Now, most of these high divers are maybe 30 feet high. This was 60 feet high. And then I, was, I, I, I somehow made it to the top of this launch pad, and, and I... I wasn't paying any attention to what these guys were doing in their preparation, but they would go over to the edge and kind of map out the strategy there, and, and they just would go off. It seemed like they knew what they were doing, but I was just in survival mode. I didn't pay any attention whatsoever, and, and I was just anxious to get this over with. And the other thing I was really trying to do uh, was trying to impress my, uh, uh, the young lady who is now my wife. So I had her in the corner of my eye down there, and I had, you know, this man thing going on, and I had to follow through with it. And um, so I dove off that thing, and I had, I was without form or void. And I had no clue what I was doing, and I landed very wrong. And everything's amplified at that kind of height, and I, I remember I landed like this. So, I was in a lot of pain for, for days. I had bruises on my arms, and, and it was just a really bad. That was the extent of my high diving experience, the one and only time I've done it. No training. But this, this guy, Charles, was a trained, skilled high diver with all the flips and contortions and everything. And, but he was raised in a home as an atheist. No background in God, no understanding of God, but... Bill befriended him, and he became very comfortable talking to Charles about his faith. And Charles was very interested. He was soaking it up. He was excited about what he was learning. The theme that really captures attention was this idea about a God who forgives. And so they, they continued to search, and they continued to study together, and Bill felt like this is the time I need to ask him. He says to Charles, are you ready to give your heart to Jesus Christ? Are you ready to trust him as your Savior? And the answer he got back was unexpected. He said emphatically, no, I'm not ready. That took Bill by surprise. He didn't expect that. And not only that, but 
But Charles became, began to avoid Bill as they would be in the class. It used to be they'd walk together and talk a little bit, but he just seemed to want to avoid him. This happened for several weeks, and then suddenly there was a, a phone call that, that Bill received. And he said, please tell me those passages about salvation again. Give me some of those verses. And, and Charles, I mean, Bill's immediate response to Charles was, hey, can we meet somewhere? Can we talk about this? And again, he said, no, I don't want to meet right now. Very puzzling. But Bill felt some sense of urgency, so he just dropped to his knees and he lifted up Charles and whatever he's going through, and he fervently had prayer for him. And, and it was about 10.30 at night, and at that university they had a, a, a pool with a high dive, and he decides to begin practice at 10.30 in the evening. That's not a very normal time to practice for anything. But so he went there. It was a full moon at night. It was a beautiful glass ceiling and, and the moon was shining in and, and he was getting up on top of the 30-foot dive and, and just uh, looking around and, and, and he was prepare, preparing himself mentally for the moves he was about to make and, and, and he just got to, to the edge and he, he turned around like this and he was going to prepare to do one of those crazy, absurd backward dives. And he began to think as he was in that posture, he began to think, of all the passages that, that uh, Bill had shared with him, and, and it just started to, to convict him in his heart, and everything in his soul began to change, and he was, he was moved to repentance. But the other thing that became a reality to him as he was facing that direction, as he looked straight forward and he saw the perfect semblance of a cross on the wall in front of him, and he completely went down to his knees and once and for good, gave his heart to Jesus Christ, 30 feet up on a platform. And suddenly, very unexpectedly, the lights came on. The caretaker of the facility came in there at another unusual time. And, and when Charles looked down, there was no water in the pool that had been drained. So the cross saved him twice that day. And I wonder today, as believers, when is the last time we've contemplated the cross in its fullness? When's the last time we've been overcome by the cross of Jesus Christ? That it brings us to our knees in humility at the most incredible, beautiful, wonderful act that a Savior could ever do for any of us. Jesus is on his way to Bethany in John chapter 9. John, sorry, John chapter 12. This is six days before the Passover, and so he goes to the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and there's a, there's a plotting to kill Lazarus because Lazarus, having just been raised from the, from the dead, was a target for the power of God, and they wanted to eliminate him, so there was a lot of buzz. The paparazzi were there in full force, and this is also the setting of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with the perfume, and the stage is set also for the triumphal entry in chapter 12, 
Because now is the time that Jesus is going to be crowned king of, of the earthly kingdom. So there was so much excitement. It was electric that day. And the leaders were thinking, we failed. We missed our opportunity. His plans are now completely succeeding. And in John chapter 20, this obscure little group of Greeks come into the scene. And they said something very simple to Philip. We want to see Jesus. So Jesus go, I mean, Philip goes and talks with Jesus, and Jesus begins to instruct those around him, and he talks about that this is the hour that I've come to be glorified, and there's a grain of wheat that falls and dies and springs to life, and he's talking about his own resurrection and life. He's talking about if you love your life, you will lose it, and if, and if you serve and if you follow me, then the Father will be honored by you. So he gives this instruction for those around to hear. And all of a sudden, an audible voice, the Bible says, is heard by God himself. And what's interesting is God's voice appeared at several significant points along Jesus' life. It appeared that others could hear at his baptism. It appeared at his transfiguration when he's lifted up. It appears now before the cross, and in John 12, verse 28 says this, I have been both glorified it and will glorify it again, the Father speaking. Jesus Christ glorified his Father through the life and through the ministry that he led. And now he's going to glorify his Father through his death and through his resurrection and I go back to the story in the wilderness when the serpent was lifted up. O oh, death, where is thy sting? Serpents, where is thy victory? In 1 Corinthians 15.55. In that voice that was heard, Jesus said, The voice did not come because of me, but for your sake, for our sake. So maybe today, church, there's a voice that God is speaking to us that we need to refocus again on the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the cross didn't make sense to the Jews. They had a system of practices and a system of, of religion that they thought was the most important thing. And again, I go back to the challenge of the day is the cross must mean everything to us. And in 12, verse 32 was shared, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Can I talk straight with you today? We've been lifting up some banners in our church. Maybe they've been banners of certain conspiracy theories, and maybe they've been banners of certain theological debates. I won't name them. Maybe we've developed a fear of the end times as a reason why Jesus didn't give us all the details of how everything's going to happen. And interestingly enough, the, word, the phrase, fear not, is the most used command by Jesus in all of Scripture. Fear not. What he's saying by that to us today is, is folks, don't lose focus on me. Lift me up in the center of your lives. 
Don't look at the waves. Don't look at the storms. Don't look at all those things. Keep looking at me as your salvation. He says, I'm going to be the one to help you fight your battles. I'm going to be the one to guide you, and I'll be the one to heal you, but you've got to stay focused on me and nothing else. See, we have an opportunity to focus on the, the crisis, or we can focus on the cross. It's a significant choice we have. I'm not saying here today that we shouldn't be concerned about error in our truth, but I believe it's important as we're seeking truth, we seek it as a desire to know Jesus and not as a point to win an argument. There's a huge difference there. My daughter, Nikki, um, had a profound quote in her senior yearbook. As parents, we really, you know, we're concerned about what our kids might say. If you've had seniors that graduated, you know, the yearbook and the quote and what they put down there, that's for everyone to see. And there's a little bit of anxiety when you open that yearbook and you're not quite sure what your kid has said. And, and so I, my wife and I looked at that, and, and there was really profound words there. And she said this, you ready? Keep the main thing the main thing. I had to ponder that for a few minutes. Well, I guess that's okay. I'm sure it has some really good meaning. But when you think about that today, in the context of the cross, I want to embrace that. We need to keep the main thing of Jesus Christ at the center we need to keep the cross at the center and the highest priority of our lives today. Amen? So maybe God's voice is speaking to us today. And he's calling us to hold up a banner. Because we know today, and I hope we embrace the reality that the cross is where the power is. The cross is where we receive instruction. It's the cross where we receive healing. And I love what Paul said in closing, for I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. We have a song to sing together that highlights the reality of being at the cross, so I invite us to sing together as we close. Father God, it's at the cross where we find the ultimate act of love displayed for each one of us. It's at the cross where we find our purpose. It's at the cross we find the center and the core of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we can all go back to the cross and realize how deeply it, that we are all moved by it. That we can go back to the cross, Lord, to see eternity. That we can go back to the cross, Lord, and see the reality of salvation that was given freely to us Help us to be broken by the cross today. In Jesus' name, amen.